This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 31, The Late Republic. When we left the chronological story in episode 28, we left it in 146 BCE, the year when the Romans destroyed the city of Carthage, therefore ending the mighty Carthaginian Empire, which had dominated the seas of the Western Mediterranean for many centuries. Simultaneously, the Romans were also campaigning in the Balkan Peninsula, and after defeating the Macedonians a couple of years previous, the Romans defeated the Achaeans in Corinth. So now, and very suddenly, from the end of the First Punic War, where the Romans had control of the Italian peninsula and the large islands of Sicily, Bar Syracuse, Sardinia and Corsica, the Romans would now have control over the whole of Sicily, the former lands of Carthage in North Africa, large swathes of lands across the Iberian Peninsula, particularly bordering the Mediterranean coast, and now the entire Balkan Peninsula. This was a time of tremendous glory for the Romans, now with complete control of the Western Mediterranean and a significant and intimidating empire, even though we are still in the years of the Roman Republic. This would represent a type of golden age for the Romans with huge amounts of wealth being generated from the areas of influence such as the Iberian and Balkan peninsulas. The rich were getting richer. There was a notable capitalist appetite among individuals in Rome but greed is not always regarded as an attractive character trait. Such was the commercial enterprise of the Romans now that demand for things such as timber for building projects led to deforestation in the Italian peninsula and a demand for the finer things in life such as grapes and olives in favour of staple cereal crops. When the Romans destroyed Carthage, the surviving Carthaginians were taken back to Roman lands and turned into slaves. Considerable amounts of foreign slaves were being used by wealthy landowners who were now using their lands to cultivate more desirable consumables. Slave workers were being favoured over paid workers, meaning that more unemployment existed. Standard farming was becoming harder because the wealthy landowners were putting the limited farmers under pressure by producing more for less and regular farmers had to turn to slave labour themselves, or even worse, lose their lands altogether. Farmers who found themselves out of work may have drifted towards the big cities where the wealth of the nation was being used 
on huge building projects, and so the populations of the cities started to increase, which would put further pressure on basic agriculture. When military issues began to demand more investment during the 130s BCE, less money was available for those building projects and large numbers were unemployed again. This did not bother the wealthy though, as there was still plenty of demand for their produce, even if the lowest classes of society were beginning to starve. A number of roles became available within the Roman class structure as tax farming became more popular, which is essentially to do with the act of selling a debt to someone called a tax farmer. Many members of the Roman cavalry forces were in a position to exploit this kind of opportunity and this would lead to there being a recognisable class of people called the equities who were able to become wealthy and stay wealthy denying the opportunity to prosper for many of the plebeians. So Rome's economy was now in a precarious position as most of the wealth was being kept exclusive to the upper classes of society, the patricians and the equities in particular. However, if the common people of Rome were unable to work or generate enough to live on, then the entire Roman system could collapse. This is where we introduce the Gracchi, who were a pair of brothers and the grandsons of Scipio Africanus, the great military commander who crushed the Carthaginians at Zama. In the Roman Senate, there were concerns over the situation and especially for the plebeians of the Roman Republic who would have been represented in the Senate by tribunes. Tiberius Gracchus was the elder of the two brothers and was a tribune to the plebeians in the Roman Senate in 133 BCE. He recognised that there needed to be a system whereby some of the lands owned by the aristocratic classes needed to be redistributed to the lower class plebeians. This would have been a popular suggestion with the masses of the Roman population, but the greedy aristocrats would have feared losing their wealth and would oppose Tiberius, himself a very zealous politician. Some of the aristocrats within the Senate would suggest that Tiberius was out for himself more than the plebeian people. Many were fearful of Tiberius's attitude and at a plebeian mass gathering in which people were voting for their senator for the following year, an election which Tiberius had campaigned strongly for the rights of the plebeians, another group invaded the mass gathering and violence ensued. Many plebeians were killed, including Tiberius Gracchus himself, rumoured to have been bludgeoned to death with the leg of a chair. In the aftermath, any followers of Tiberius were exiled without trial. The later Greek essayist Plutarch would write about this historical event, calling it the first significant event of the Roman civil unrest. Needless to say, with this kind of thing going on in the Roman Republic, things would only get worse before they could become better. The plebs 
could not accept a life of poverty and the aristocracy were not prepared to give up their wealth. In the following decade, the younger brother of Tiberius would also become a tribune of the plebeians and his name being Gaius Gracchus. Gaius would put forward a plan which included stabilising the grain prices to prevent exploitation of the populace, a new system of tax farming of new Roman provinces which would favour the equities so that this particular class of wealthy Romans could have a new and regular source of income and the ability of the people of new Roman provinces to be classed as full Roman citizens. This seemed like a very progressive and inclusive plan designed to gain as much popularity as possible against the greedy patricians. Gaius's tenure as a tribune within the Senate lasted longer than his brother and eventually he would lose an election but still he would join campaigns for the plebeians and be prominent in gatherings. It was at one of these gatherings that another riot would break out. Still fearing the influence of Gaius Gracchus among the population, many of the citizens were slaughtered where they stood. This violence had echoes of the situation that killed his brother a decade earlier and it was too much for Gaius who appears to have completely lost his faith in there being any kind of resolution to the political situation in the Roman Republic. Gaius fled the scene abhorring the bloodshed and chose suicide as his final option. The plebeians honoured the Gracchi as popular heroes, erecting statues of the two brothers and apparently worshipping them as if they were gods. Even with rumours of sacrifices being made at these statues in a desperate bid to bring fortune to the lower classes of the Roman citizenry. The aristocracy was now so detached from the plebeians that the very fabric of the Roman Republic would have been splitting at the seams. Marius and Sulla If we look back at the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, we introduce the kingdom of Numidia, roughly the lands of modern Algeria, in North Africa, who allied themselves with the Romans under their king Masinissa. When Masinissa died, his throne would be taken by King Mikipsa. But when Mikipsa died in 118 BCE, there followed a succession crisis. Mikipsa's sons were not regarded as strong king material, and Mikipsa's ambitious, illegitimate nephew, Jugurtha, recognised this and made a bid for power. Mikipsa's son, Adherbal, turned to the Roman Senate for help. The Roman Senate pledged to help Adherbal, although this was not a popular decision throughout the Senate, with some of the aristocratic members sympathising with Jugurtha, who was not above a bit of shrewd bribery of top Roman officials. This would not be enough to sway the Senate as a whole in Jugurtha's direction, however, and a long drawn-out war between Rome 
and Jugurthine Numidia broke out. If we go back to the origins of the civil unrest in the Roman Republic, it stemmed from the fact that Rome's wealth and capitalistic nature caused plebeian landowners to lose their lands to wealthy patricians and equities. One of the things that accelerated plebeian land losses was that when the plebeians were required to serve in the Roman army, their lands would become less profitable in their absence, causing the decline of these individuals to be rapid. Those who served in the Roman army qualified due to their ownership of property. So now that many plebeians had lost their property, so they had lost their ability by Roman law to serve in the Roman army. So this was now a problem in terms of calling on people to serve in a long drawn out war on foreign soil with many plebeians capable of serving but not qualifying to serve. So the military needed reforming. Logically the first solution should be obvious. The Roman army needed recruits. The natural recruits could not serve as they no longer owned land, had no wealth and could not provide their own weapons. The state had wealth, but it also had wars to fight, so it made sense to pay the idle citizens of the Republic, and therefore have a professional army. Each soldier would be trained for warfare, and would be expected to carry his own supplies. He would also belong to a contubernium, alongside seven other legionaries, and ten contubernia, would make up a century, which would be led by a centurion. The rural unemployed now had a purpose, and those who survived to retirement would be promised the liberties of a full citizen, regardless of their place of origin within the Republic's empire. These were the reforms of a man called Gaius Marius. Marius's reforms were important and necessary, because the Romans were not only engaged in North Africa, but were now also under threat from a new wave of Celtic invasions from the north, and these Celts were accompanied by Germanic tribes from northern Europe too. The fact that Gaius Marius was ultimately able to command the reformed Roman armies to victory in this, the Cimbrian War, and the Jugurthine War, has immortalised Gaius Marius as one of Rome's great military leaders. But we should not be ignorant of the significant losses inflicted against the Roman Republic. The Numidian usurper Jugurtha was captured and taken to Rome where he would die in prison. However, Marius had continued the work of the Gracchi brothers before him in supporting the plebeian mass population of the Roman Republic, which can be referred to as a political faction called the Populares, and will be somewhat important to the rest of the story. The opponents of the Populares were the Optimates, the stubborn conservative patricians who defended senatorial supremacy and Roman traditions. Despite the fact that the Populares were indeed a Roman faction who favoured plebeian rights more than the Optimates, 
there were still those ethnic groups within the Italian peninsula who were not granted full Roman citizenship. Over the course of the last 50 years, the Roman Republic had seen various revolts that had been suppressed. Some would be from the slave classes, who have not been mentioned much at all in our story. When the Italian ethnic groups who were denied full Roman civil rights decided to create an alliance, the Roman Republic would have a serious problem on its hands. This Italian confederation was planning a secession from the Roman Republic. So now the popularis man Gaius Marius found himself commanding a military force against an Italian confederation. One of his allies in this confrontation was a man called Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix, more commonly known by his name Sulla. Sulla accompanied Marius in the Jugurthine War, so they were very familiar with each other. The Social War lasted for four years between the Roman Republic and the Italian allied rebels, and there were substantial losses on both sides. Ultimately, the Romans would defeat the Italian Confederation, with the irony being that the Italians would be granted the ability to be full Roman citizens in the aftermath, which was the main reason why the conflict escalated in the first place. Therefore now, if you were born on the Italian peninsula, you were now Roman and you spoke Latin. Sulla's role in this Roman victory was very important, with important southern cities such as Pompeii and Herculaneum being defeated. Sulla would receive high acclaim from his followers. He would be elected as consul for the first time in his political career in 88 BCE and would set about making economic reforms which gained his popularity with the plebeians, despite him being a member of the Ottomans. Sulla would look forward to leading his consular army to Anatolia to battle with the kingdom of Pontus, but the Roman Senate switched their preferred command to Marius, who by now was almost 70 years old. Sulla was absolutely outraged. Sulla would take his loyal army of followers to Rome and would seize power in a military coup of the Republic. The very fabric of the Roman Republic was now under threat and a civil war ensued between the Optimates, led by Sulla, and the Populares, led by Marius. Despite Sulla and the Optimates being victorious, a precedent was now set for future civil conflicts. Sulla would go through with his intended campaign against Pontus, scoring a victory against King Mithridates VI of Pontus in the First Mithridatic War, before returning to Rome. While Sulla was gone, he discovered that an elderly Gaius Marius had returned to Rome from exile and terrorised the supporters of Sulla before gaining his consulship back. However, Marius died an old man just days after becoming consul and the Populares cause was taken up by Marius's own son, Gaius Marius the Younger, among others. 
on Sulla's return, he would defeat the Populares in a long-drawn-out Second Civil War and take back control. Marius the Younger committed suicide in the shame of defeat. Sulla would be declared as the dictator of the Roman Republic. Sulla would look to punish the individuals in the cities who had supported the Marian cause, declaring them as enemies of the state. However, Sulla would now lose interest in matters of the state, preferring to enjoy the rewards of a gloriously successful political and military life. He would retire, write his memoirs, before he died in 78 BCE. Triumvirate When Sulla came back to Rome from Pontus and he engaged with the Populares, he was accompanied by two individuals who we have mentioned in previous episodes of the podcast. Firstly, Marcus Licinius Crassus, who featured in the story of the Parthians back in episode 3, and also Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, who is more commonly known as Pompey, and who came up in the Greek story back in episode 24, as well as the Egyptian story back in volume 2, particularly episode 20. Pompey was an optimate ally of Sulla, during the civil wars and his military command was impressive. The Romans referred to the Iberian Peninsula holdings as Hispania. The word Hispania gives us the name of the modern country of Spain but also provides us with the adjective Hispanic to describe Spanish speakers. It was in Hispania that a rebellion of the Populares broke out under the command of Quintus Sertorius. Sertorius caused huge problems for a period to the Optimates and Pompey was an important part of the Optimate counter-offence that ultimately defeated the Populares in Hispania. However, Pompey was going to have another problem to deal with soon after. The rebellions against the elite members of the Roman society inspired the slave class, a class which we have spoken little of during this Roman series of episodes. The rights of Roman slaves were pretty non-existent in the early years, although as the Roman Republic grew and the wealthiest became more wealthy, the slave class became more fashionable and those individuals belonging to conquered societies were typically turned into Roman slaves. Slavery wasn't something new though and it had existed in most societies for many, many centuries. We even first speculated about it in Volume 1 when discussing the emergence of sedentary societies. It makes sense that individuals with less common sense and a fear of independence would slot into a slave role where they are told what to do and subsequently kept healthy and protected. Fast forward to the Roman age and slavery was more to do with who you were and where you were born. So anyone of Carthaginian heritage was destined 
for a life of slavery with no choice of lifestyle and no power to challenge the ruling class. You were born and you were a slave. It was that simple. Worse still is that the Romans were happy to humiliate their slaves purely for entertainment and this echoes the behaviour of the Spartans against the Messenian helots which was an issue that we first spoke about back in episode 7. Certainly by this time we can feel confident that slaves were being singled out to engage in battle in Roman theatres and amphitheatres which are the ovular or circular theatres. Sometimes they would battle with each other, other times with criminals, and other times with wild animals. If the slave was killed, it didn't matter as long as the audience was entertained. Some of the slaves were highly trained for such combat, and the ones who were granted the use of a sword became gladiators. The gladiators despite being dispensable entertainers, were actually celebrated and admired by many. But this was no consolation for their humiliating position in society. Thousands of gladiators lost their lives each year, but being a gladiator was not always a death sentence as could be imagined, with historians suggesting that around 20-25% to would lose their lives in the act of entertaining citizens. Let's make no mistake though, becoming a gladiator would not have been a particularly glorious prospect for a long life and one retired gladiator would take inspiration from rebellions against the Roman Senate when he and dozens of others enslaved at a gladiator school in the city of Capua started a rebellion. The former gladiator's name was Spartacus. We don't really know a lot about Spartacus, which could come as a surprise when you consider that his name is immortalised in Roman folklore. However, he is iconic of a slave class rising up against the mighty Roman Republic. Eventually, tens of thousands of slaves would join the uprising in something wonderfully named by Plutarch as the Gladiator War. The seriousness of the slave revolt caused both Crassus and Pompey to command legions against the massive slave army and it shouldn't necessarily come as a huge surprise that the Roman Republic was able to overcome the slave army. Spartacus was recorded to have been killed at the climax of the war by many sources, but there's an air of mystery with one source stating that the body of Spartacus was never recovered from the battlefield. Nonetheless, the victory was a heroic one for the Roman Republic and for the reputations of Crassus and Pompey. In the meantime, Mithridates VI of Pontus had managed to shift the balance of power in Anatolia back in his favour after Sulla had defeated him in the previous decade. Despite some good progress being made by the new Roman commander Lucullus, his soldiers mutinied due to the fact that Lucullus had not conclusively defeated Pontus. So Pompey was sent over to get the job done. And although it still took a few years for him to achieve his goal, he would return to Rome 
with his head held high. This is where we brush shoulders with our story of Persian lands from back in episode 3. Mithridatis VI of Pontus fled from Pontus in 66 BCE and his closest ally Tigranes II of Armenia had to allow his kingdom to come under the influence of Pompey. Pompey would then annex the rump Seleucid state, putting an end to the Seleucid Empire before going on to capture Jerusalem in an amazing campaign. Despite all of their successes, there may have been an element of the green-eyed monster about Crassus while Pompey was seemingly the hero of the day, with much credit given for the suppression of the slave revolt under Spartacus, despite Crassus playing an important part in the victory. It would come down to a man that had been serving as the governor of Hispania to mediate between Crassus and Pompey, and that man's name was Gaius Julius Kaiser. We will refer to him by his popular westernised name, Julius Caesar. What these three men had in common was a frustration with the Roman Senate. It appears that the Senate was determined to prevent any one individual from becoming dominant, and despite Crassus and Pompey being optimates and Caesar being a popularis, the three decided to make a political pact, which we refer to as the First Triumvirate, and they would find a way to influence the Roman Senate much more than they were doing so previously. Caesar was an incredible man and we will give him his due focus and attention during this podcast series. He had spotted a diplomatic doorway to a position of influence. The frustrated but incredibly wealthy Crassus and the expert military ability of Pompey had been coerced into a political agreement with a political rival thanks to the perceived stubbornness of the Senate. Caesar was the elected consul at the time, so this is why Crassus and Pompey recognised Caesar's value to them. Despite the first triumvirate being a stabilising influence on the fragile political system of the Roman Republic, Caesar would still set about further conquests in the lands of Gaul, which relate to the origin of the Gallic peoples, or the Gauls, but would actually be predominantly the lands of the modern-day countries of France and Belgium. He would also attempt to invade the British Isles, and this all took place in the 50s BCE. With Crassus campaigning in Asia against the Parthians, Pompey was the only member of the First Triumvirate still in Rome. Pompey had been married to Caesar's daughter, Julia, to cement the political alliance, and Julia had fallen pregnant. However, in 54 BCE, Julia died in childbirth, and the child did not survive either, bringing a huge cloud over the triumvirate, as if it had been cursed. The following year, Crassus met with the Parthians at the Battle of Carrhae. The result was a victory for the Parthians and a disaster for the Romans as Crassus had been killed 
in battle. Pompey decided that he wanted to distance himself from Caesar, despite Caesar's attempts to repair the relationship between them. It became clear that the optimate Pompey had decided that a relationship with the popularis Caesar was now worth nothing to him. Pompey may well have been an important part in turning the Roman Senate against Caesar's campaigns, which to a certain degree had been allowed even if they had not all been approved by the Senate. Now Pompey was a highly influential politician and he instigated a Roman refusal to recognise Caesar as the governor of the conquered province of Gaul. Before Caesar could return from Gaul to Rome, he was instructed to disband his army and return to Rome as an ordinary citizen. Caesar had little interest in obeying this demand. Caesar kept his loyal popularis army by his side and marched south from Gaul. As Caesar descended into the Italian peninsula, he would cross the Rubicon River in 49 BCE and this river crossing was symbolic because this was the particular action that was identified as the point of no return in the conscious declaration of war. No commander was to cross the Rubicon with his army, but Caesar had done it. In actuality, many Romans had been itching to have an excuse to fight for their political rights, and this was less a declaration of war between Caesar and Pompey, and more a declaration of a civil war between the popularis and the optimates. Pompey fled Rome possibly fearing the might of Caesar's army and wanting more time to prepare for battle. So the whole episode escalated into a protracted civil war with fighting breaking out in various areas of the entire Roman Republic's dominions over the course of the next four years. The eye-catching period of this great Roman civil war called Caesar's Civil War was when Caesar and Pompey's armies met on the battlefield more than once on the Balkan Peninsula in 48 BCE. The Optimates under Pompey scored a victory over Caesar's popularis at Dyrrachium in July, before Caesar hit back hard during the following month at Pharsalus. Pompey escaped from the scene of the battle, reportedly leaving his army to their fate many of which had to surrender to Caesar. This is where our story ties up with the Egyptian story that we told at the end of the Egyptian Summary episode in Volume 2, particularly Episode 20. There we told how the famous Egyptian Queen Cleopatra VII's father, Ptolemy XII, had sought refuge in Rome around ten years previous for himself and his daughter, under the protection of Pompey. Ptolemy XII was dead by 48 BCE, but his daughter was now Queen Cleopatra VII. Pompey decided to flee to Egypt for his own protection. However, as we learned during that old episode, it wasn't Cleopatra VII who greeted Pompey 
on his arrival, but it was the man who was her brother, husband and rival for the Egyptian throne, Ptolemy XIII, who met Pompey. Ptolemy would murder Pompey with the possible motives of preventing a political alliance between Pompey and Cleopatra, and to maybe impress Julius Caesar into forming an alliance against Cleopatra. On Caesar's eventual arrival in Egypt, he was appalled to discover that his respected political rival Pompey had been so unceremoniously murdered, not even on the glorious field of battle. Caesar would depose Ptolemy XIII, choosing an alliance with the woman who was his sister, wife and rival to the Egyptian throne, Cleopatra. Caesar could not marry Cleopatra, but he did impregnate her, maybe in a bid to try to secure a political loyalty from the queen of this fertile land, which Caesar would have preferred not to have had any Roman optimate connection for the benefit of his own power and legacy. Despite Pompey's death and the fact that Caesar was now the dictator of Rome, the Optimates were still ready to battle Caesar. Caesar would meet them in the former heartlands of the Carthaginians in the modern-day country of Tunisia and defeat them at the Battle of Thapsus. Caesar would use this victory to deny the Optimates the loyalty that they had enjoyed from the North African kingdoms of Numidia and Mauritania, which respectively could be compared to the coastal lands of the modern countries of Algeria and Morocco. The Optimates fled to Hispania, and Caesar would continue to pursue them before winning a decisive battle at Munda in 45 BCE, which effectively ended the Optimate opposition of Caesar that had begun when they had demanded that he disband his army before he crossed the Rubicon in 49 BCE. Caesar would return to Rome in personal glory and a hero to the populares and their supporters. However, this fragile political situation was unlikely to be accepted too readily by the Optimates and already conspiracies were being plotted against Caesar by those conservative-minded people who wanted to preserve the integrity of the Roman Republic. It is believed that a group of 60 Optimates, formed by the Roman senators Marcus Junius Brutus and Gaius Cassius Longinus, attacked Caesar on the Ides of March at the portico of the Basilica of Pompey the Great, Caesar's old rival. Caesar was stabbed 23 times and he fell at the base of the statue of his great rival Pompey and there he died. However, Brutus and Cassius did not have the ability to gain a political influence over Rome as Romans disapproved of the assassination of Caesar and so they rallied behind Caesar's closest personal allies and relations, namely Marcus Antonius and Gaius Octavius, more commonly known in Western academia as Mark Antony and Octavian. 
the ultimate attempt to rescue the power of the Roman Republic had failed, even though the great Julius Caesar had been murdered. So it was only a matter of time before the Republic collapsed completely. Well, what an incredibly important episode of Roman history. And it ties together that uh, period between the Punic Wars and the First Triumvirates. And so it's really the story of the two political factions, the Optimates and the Populares. And uh, we really, we like to talk about the characters um, in popular history. We like to talk about Julius Caesar. We like to talk about Spartacus. And um, we don't tend to really look too closely at what was actually going on. We like to talk about the gladiators. Really, this was the period of the Optimates and the Popularis. And once you understand that political balance um, that was going on in Rome, it it makes sense of the whole period um, of the 2nd century BCE leading into the 1st century BCE. And, and how the the origins of the collapse of the Republic um, came about and um, why it happened. And so thank you very much for listening to that very interesting episode. Now, this is such an important period of history um, that it wouldn't do just to go diving into the empire now and... Um, and not sort of have a closer look at some of the things that were actually going on during the course of this episode. So for the next uh, for the next few episodes, we're going to be looking at some of the confrontations that took place um, during this very important period. And of course, when we look at the Roman Republic now, it was an empire. There's no two ways. We don't we refer to the Roman Empire as a distinct thing from the Roman Republic, but now we're talking about an empire, the Roman Republic as an empire. So we're looking at lands from you know Western Europe right the way from France and Spain. We're looking at the lands of North Africa right the way across uh, from Numidia all the way across to Egypt. And then we're looking at Asian lands as well. So we're looking at the Anatolia, Syria. Um, we really are talking about large portions of the world's land masses and so um, it's um, it's quite a key part of history so over the course of the next um, the next few episodes we're going to be looking at uh, we're going to be taking a look at the battle of mount vesuvius which was a key part of the third servile war um, involving spartacus so we're going to be looking at spartacus a bit more closely and uh, also we're going to be looking at some of the campaigns of Crassus and Caesar, um, in particular in Asian lands and also uh, in the lands of Gaul. So we've got a lot to cover before we actually go into the story of what happened with Mark Antony and Octavian, which is the, the next chapter going forward. So uh, plenty to get our teeth into in terms of the the Roman story and um, you know quite a few battles to come up so if you like the battle episodes then um, something to feel really good about. Also I think we've we've hit two extremely big characters 
in the story of the history of the world in Julius Caesar and Cleopatra. So we're also going to be having uh, episodes that focus on these two individuals as characters. So we're going to learn a lot more about these two. Now, I got a nice message from tonight from Nick Barksdale from the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages YouTube channel. Um, those of you who are familiar with Nick's work and um, the relationship that the History of the World podcast has got with Nick's channel uh, will know that he makes videos of uh, many different podcasts and he's done quite a number of the History of the World podcast episodes in video form. He's just recently um, done one about the the emergence of villages. So it's, it's really quite um, an old episode of the History of the World podcast um, talking about how um, villages originated um, back in the Neolithic, so part of the sedentary um, settlements that we we spoke of briefly during this episode, um, you know, a lot earlier in this episode as well. Um, so uh, that's something to go and check out if you get the opportunity to. Um, I try and put the YouTube links on the pages on the History of the World podcast.com website um, so that you can actually go and watch those episodes directly from uh, from the website but while you're on the website why don't you consider making a contribution towards the podcast towards the upkeep of the podcast uh, by visiting the patreon page where you can sign up and make a monthly donation and if you go and have a look there you will actually see that there are also rewards if you do sign up and make a monthly contribution uh, to the podcast and you'll really help me to invest in materials that will enhance the uh, the production of the podcast and you can never have too many sources and, and it really does help me to triangulate um information and make sure that it is relevant and it uh, it does deserve um, a mention during the podcast episodes that I'm not just taking my information from one source relying on one source and, and just keeping my fingers crossed that it's right um, the more sources the better the more scholars that can reference a, a certain event or an action or even a speech um it really does help to uh, add to the authenticity of the material in the podcast episode. So um, if you sign up and make a monthly contribution, you will be helping to make this podcast a higher quality podcast. If you don't have the ability to make a financial donation, then rating and reviewing the podcast really does make a difference to enhancing the profile of the podcast so don't feel that you've got to make a financial contribution a lot of people do uh, do feel like that they should um, spend their money in better areas than than something like this and that's absolutely fine just rate and review the podcast and you'll still be helping the podcast a great deal now it's interesting we talk about the battle episodes we've got polls running now on facebook and on twitter just asking uh, how people feel about the the battle sound effects that we have during the battle episodes. 
and uh, assuming that I haven't on a future date got rid of them all from the Battle Podcast episodes, um, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So um, certainly last week when we was talking about the Battle of Zama, um, we, you know, once we get into the nitty gritty of the battle, we have some nice clashy swords and, and um, you know, shouting and, and one thing and another and uh, to really try and set the mood for the battle so you really feel like you're sort of in the thick of it with the story but um, it's not everybody's cup of tea I'm afraid some people find it quite distracting from listening to the narrative Um, so I put a poll out there just to see if um, there was a general consensus so if you want to vote on that if you haven't voted already then go either to Facebook or Twitter and have a look down the news feeds for um, for the History of the World podcast. And um, have your say. Let me know what you think about um, these sound effects and, and whether you think they should have a place in the podcast or not. Uh, I'd be really, really interested to hear from you, obviously. Um, I take great pride in these episodes being um, entertaining and easy to listen to. So your opinion would be highly valued. If you haven't voted already, go along and do it now, please. So it's been a bit of a long one this week, so I'm going to wrap up quickly. I won't uh, go on too long. And uh, I just want to uh, read a message from Nick Kerr, who's put, um, Hi Chris, another Australian history buff here. About six months ago, I fell across your podcast on YouTube and listened to random episodes before my wife showed me how to get podcasts don't laugh i'm not real good with that stuff so i've recently started from volume one episode one and i'm responding to your call for comments in episode five albeit about two years too late your podcast is the best presentation of human history that i have personally heard it's hard to put my finger on why i like the show uh, but i think you understand your audience their level of knowledge and what they would find interesting for example you break down and explain the scientific terminology and reference back to previous episodes to refresh our memory also you have relaxed uh, you have a relaxed approach and emphasis on what's important so hopefully you don't change anything i look forward to catching up to july 2020 uh, well that's really really kind of you to send me that message Nick um, and anyone that does want to send me a message just drop me a line at history of the world podcast uh, at mail.com history of the world podcast at mail.com and uh, let me know what you think of the show any um, criticisms you might have of the show always like a criticism and like to read them out like to uh, like to uh, have a bit of a Barney from now uh, every now and then a bit of an argument. So uh, please bring it on, bring it on. Let's uh, let's discuss history. Let's uh, discuss it passionately. Um, but until next week, where we uh, talk about the Battle of Mount Vesuvius, we start talking about who Spartacus is, why we love slaves revolting against their masters, why we enjoy hearing about that, why that's mythologised. Let's have a look at that next week. And... Uh, Let's uh, look forward to learning more about this mysterious man called Spartacus. But until then, have a fantastic but safe week, everyone. And don't forget to be good. 
Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.